WDSM Time, 907, hour number two of Sound Off with Brad Bennett. Brad, uh, we have some different elements here, so we're going to do this a little different as we come back to hour number two. But we do have in the studio Donna Bergstrom, Pete Wood, and on the phone we have Ron from the Menominee Tribe in Wisconsin. So they're all here. Excellent. Everybody's here. Now, i, I got to ask you right off the bat, Peter, um, would you please ask Donna if I could have uh, – could sit in at ease stance for this show. You know, usually when Donna Bergstrom, a retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, is with us, I have to sit at attention for the whole hour. But I've recently had my knee replaced, and so I have a, a certain amount of pain th- threshold here. So I would just beg that she allow me to sit at ease for this hour. At ease, Marine, at ease. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. Boy, but what did you get a big designation re- recently uh, through the state of Minnesota Republican Party? You're the like the number two in charge. I am, Brad. Thank you so much. Yep, I'm deputy chair. I was elected deputy chair December 11th at the state convention and uh, state central convention. So I'm the number two, as you say, in, in command of the Republican Party of Minnesota. Feels real good. Now, if we could just get the uh, rest of the uh, area here in northern Minnesota understand the quality of a candidate that we have here, and we could get you elected somewhere where you could do us some good, it would prob- probably be a good thing. Peter, how away. was your Christmas? It was very good, Brad. We had a nice family time and uh, trying to get into the swing of things a little bit and uh, figure out uh, how to keep going to finish out the winter because... Uh, you get kind of tired of the snow after a while, I guess. <laughs> it just started. Do you really? Yeah, uh, yeah it just started. Years ago, I think in my 20s, you just loved it. You wanted the snow, the cold. You wanted to really hit it hard. And as you get older, your 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 thoughts do change, folks, a little bit. They slowly do change yeah. in your, your outlook and you tire faster and that kind of stuff. But uh, I can't sit here and complain all day. Nobody's going to listen after a while. Well, no. You know, Exactly. <laughs> And and again, uh, Peter, we are proud and privileged to have Ron join us from over in the Menominee Tribe over in Wisconsin, uh, who handles their, I, I guess, what would Ron's title be? Is he like the chief logger of the tribe? or uh, He's, he's a fort. Maybe, Ron, Ron, are you there? He's a forester over in Menominee Tribe. Yes, I'm here. Morning, Brad, Peter, Donna. Good morning. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. <laughs> So, well, Peter, I'm going to let you. Uh, I'm going to let you take it away, Peter. Take the discussion, and because uh, okay. this is is this the third segment now that we've had, and I think this is going to be the final segment of of having the Menominee uh, people on. But it, it's really been very enlightening to see how they have treated forestry as opposed to how some of us have treated it. Just thought it just normal happens. But uh, Right. No, this actually, stuff. Brad, folks out there, this is actually the fourth show we've done. Out. The is very first show okay. was September, then October, November, and now December. And uh, when we first started, I thought it may take four shows, and it, it, it didn't go that far. And we, because of this, trying to stress how much, how important this this really is. And the Menominee Tribe has very been gracious, willing to come on with Ron as a forester to talk about how they manage the forest, not only just lately, but thousands of years in the past. And a lot of times, folks, when we we hear something, it <clears throat> it takes two, three, four times of hearing because it's maybe not normal to your way of thinking. 
and you think that it's right. something new. Is it really true? But this, what they have done with the Menominee tribe, it's like 220,000 acres. Folks, why couldn't you take that, that model, what they do there, and apply it across the nation, across all the forests? I imagine their fire danger with what they do, Ron, I wouldn't doubt that your fire danger is extremely low year-round because you're constantly managing the forest. And there's other areas that do manage the forest, like here in Minnesota, St. Louis County, Itasca County, Kuchichin County, where they manage the forest as well. Where we start to become a problem, I think, is as you get up higher in the ranks at the national level because there's so much bureaucracy that has been established and put in place that it becomes harder and harder to get things done. Now, <clears throat> you can have administrations, you can have politicians claiming that, yes, we are for the timber industry, but then they what they will do is they will put, so to speak, roadblocks in the way to stop you from managing the forest. Like, yeah, you can harvest those trees, but you can't get the permit to build a road except for certain only a couple months out of the year. Well, right. it gets very difficult it gets very difficult to run a multi-million dollar operation only a couple months out of the year. And so what happens is we slowly get away from it and the timber keeps growing and then the fuel load keeps building. I always bring it back as a fuel load because either you use the fuel for the benefit of man and use it in everyday life or it can come back and bite you like a major, major forest fire. And if, if, if remember back on the very first show, I said I would come up and I would tell you later on, on this show, how I would start naming forest fires. And the reason why is because a lot of times we will say something like the Greenwood Lake Fire, or we will call something like over in the Menominee or a Menominee Fire. And I might get in a bit of trouble for saying this because it's been bothering me for quite a while. But the truth is, why don't we think of it a little bit different, folks? Why don't we start labeling off of politicians? Instead of you talking about how you want to help the timber industry, maybe you're doing things that are not helping the timber industry. And so as that fuel load builds and the fire gets out of control... You could start naming it after politicians. You could. You got Duluth here where you got a fair amount of forest. Actually, you do. Now, we're in the upper Midwest, folks. I know there's folks listening in other parts of the country. And up here in the upper Midwest, like you have Duluth where we're out of, you could literally have a forest fire here in Duluth. Why not call it who's ever in charge? You could call it the Emily Larson fire. You get a bigger fire in northern Minnesota and the governor hasn't done a whole lot, you could call it the Tim Walls fire. You could get to the national level and go over into California and all of a sudden you can call it the Pelosi fire. How about over going West Virginia? Former or still Governor Ralph Norton fire. You could keep going on this for quite some time. And I might get in trouble for this. But I think there needs to be some kind of ownership, responsibility, that if you're not willing to do something, I, don't have, I can't name the fires. I'm a logger. Yeah. But I'm putting a thought out there, well, folks. Peter, 
Uh, Peter, just let me say this. Uh, I, first of all, number one, I don't think politicians would ever let you get away with that because they would somehow block it from happening. But but more importantly, I wonder if somebody like Ron from over in Menominee would comment about, you know, we have seen a series of fires in northern California, well, in that whole area up there, that it appears to me, and I, I, I could be wrong, and if, you, if Ron, if you can explain why I'm wrong, I'll be more than happy to expect, accept it. But it seems to me that so many of those fires are caused by mismanagement of the Forest Service. You know, as Peter said, uh, it's one thing to let it, to let you go into an area and log off some of the load that's in there, but how about removing uh, some of the brush from the uh, from the roadways or 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 building a fire break? where the fire would stop if it started in an area because it seems like some of these areas year after year after year they have fires in the same area they never clear off the underbrush and it just keeps coming back now am am i wrong with that that it it appears like it's just mismanagement of the forest yeah it's it's lack of management going back for for decades when the policies changed you know where they did less logging and less road building um you know and it, and it took did take fire out of the out of the ecosystem and you had these massive massive amounts of fuel like peter says fuel load buildups and there was no no thinning of the forests were being done the lack of removing the the um forest products that they could be used to the the, the sawmills kind of folded up out west um you know there's a lot of things that tied into it but Overall, just lack of cutting and lack of keeping them thin, and uh, that that that's a direct uh, catastrophic stand removing fire that that we're seeing now. So the fires, they're unnatural fuel loads. Years ago, years ago, the the you know pre-settlement, the tribes were burning. They're keeping it open, keeping it more manageable, and then you know, and then as you take fire out, the trees grow in, they fill in. And then there be they were logging and thinning them out and keeping them intact. But within the last thirty years, with the lack of logging, you've had these, and you also had insect uh, invasives, uh, um, in, in insect and disease dying trees that add to the fuel load. You know, I've been out, sure. out in the western states where it looks like matchsticks. You know, it looks like the fuel is just loading up, and they can't they don't remove it. They didn't salvage the timber when it died. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things that are coming together now to see the fires of that we're seeing out west that are that are that intense, and people are moving from the cities out into into the um, rural areas, into the into the forest, right. basically, making it harder to protect everything out there. So, Peter, I have a question Do, for logging in general. Is there a is there a certain amount of pressure put on logging as a as a whole? to not cut areas, to not thin out areas, to not allow roads to be built uh, by, well, I don't want to call them environmentalists, uh, by, by just people that think they're doing good when in, in reality they're doing exactly the opposite? There's spots where, <clears throat> I don't know, we have a designated areas like the BWC where you do not have any motor vehicles going in maybe through special permits or something like that. 
but you have like counties and states where before a, a, a sale is put up, they have to do a lot of studies on it, and they will go through all the paperwork and all check off on many things, and then they put the sales up. But when you go to buy a sale or harvest a sale, that's all shown on there, and then they'll show you what is reserved and what is merchantable, what is sold and what is not, and then you have to look at it and see, okay, can I do this efficiently? Um, there's nothing thrown unless there's a lawsuit thrown somewhere. There's nothing thrown at that sale unless there's something. A lot of times um, people find it as like a political football to where it can sure. push an agenda that they want. Um, the the ones that are usually pushing that, they have a hidden agenda all along. The ones that I find that are more important to try and reach are the ones that are not sure, and if you tell them the truth, they think on it, and then they start to understand that now I get it, and now I understand. And so harvesting the trees becomes, there is a lot of pressure when you are harvesting trees because it isn't just the harvesting of trees. You, you have to be profitable, and the profit margin gets to be very, very thin, and you're working constantly. And it gets very frustrating because everything is escalating and what we get does not. Yeah. So, well, guys, we have, we have got to take our uh, first break here of this segment. Uh, so uh, kind of hold your powder as we go through this. But, uh, you know, something Ron just said uh, really struck me, and that's uh, the issue of the invasive species, too. If you if you allow a lot of dead and dying wood to lay on the floor of a forest, you're in, you're basically inviting bugs and beetles and different infestation. A lot of times, uh, uh, th- bugs that are not even normal to an area will find a way to find their way into this area because there's plenty to eat, plenty to devour. So when we come back, let's talk a little bit about the natural problems that come up with a forest as well and and maybe what we can do to address some of those things. But uh, we're going to have to take our first break here on uh, hour number two on a Wednesday morning sound off. And uh, right now we're into the segment called Let the Sawdust Fly with Peter Wood. And we'll be right back. Listen on your Echo device. Just say something like this. Alexa, play WDSM radio. Giant Redwood, Larch, the Fur, the Mighty Scots. The smell of fresh-cut timber. The crash of mighty trees. With my best girl by my side, we'd sing, sing, sing. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. On Wednesday, and I, I go, go to the lavatory. Stands for tea. He cuts down trees. Eat. Uh, as we left this last segment, we started yep. talking about. Uh, uh, fuel loads and and a little bit about uh, what things the public kind of loses sight about that's important with managing a forest. Maybe you want to uh, kick in a little bit. Yeah, on, uh, on what you're when we left when we left left last time was um, before commercial break that um, the what we have found out, folks, with like from the forest floor from a lot from when I look at it as a logger standpoint, what I actually see happen out in the woods. It seems like they go like on 20, 30-year cycles 
where the bugs come in or you have infestation or something. Right. And what we have found personally, what I saw works the best is harvesting the job site off, smashing down the trash. It becomes like a fertilizer and the new stuff comes back. And we, I've seen forests where there was a lot of dead trees, down trees, and you go back 30 years later after a harvest and done right, it's a young, vital, just blooming forest that's healthy, vibrant, growing. And that's what I've seen firsthand. Uh, Ron, out there, when you have infestations like that, what uh, what do a lot of times you do out there? Yeah, we, we manage the same. You know, we, we have all different types of, of treatments that we do in our forest from single tree thinnings to, you know, like pine shelterwood types to even age clear cuts to regenerate aspen. So we do, we do, you know, the perception that we don't manage a certain way, like with clear cutting, we do, we do all that stuff. You know, we've learned from the forest and learned from past management treatments that we've done. um, And we move forward with tweaking those type of treatments and uh, applying them to our forest. So when we get in, we have a few, um, if we have infestations, we've had some defoliating occurrences here. Um, we just, we've just been, continue to manage the forest the same and monitor, you know, look at it. Um, you know, after, after we do a harvest, we'll monitor it after a certain amount of time to see the impacts of the treatment. If it's, if the trees are responding, the ones, you know, that we chose to leave in the stand or, or if we do a clear cut, we just kind of monitor the regrowth. Like Peter said, after, you know, the initial harvest looks a little, I think that's a perception people get when they initially harvest something, it looks a little, a little um, hard uh, impacts. But after a few years, you know what, everything comes right back. It breeds back up and it continues to grow. So we have all different ages and all different types of uh, treatments on our forest. Well, Ron, this is uh, this is Brad again, and that that's been one of the things that I've been wanting to ask you over these segments that we've had. Uh, the uh, the tribal forestry, when you go in and and cut an area, let's let's say you you do a planned harvest in an area, you go out and harvest a certain area. Does the does the tribal organization come in and replant trees, or is that left up to the federal government, or or how does that all take place? We are, we're actually funded, you know, we're actually in a trust agreement with the, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs here. So uh, uh, some of the funding that we do get um, for the fire programs and the forestry programs and you know, particularly the forest development, like you're talking. So if we decide, if we pick an area that we want to um, take off a certain tree species and maybe plant pine trees back, um, that's something that, yeah, we'd be at assistance from the the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and then we go back sure. in and then replant pine in that area, and then we monitor it, and then we tend to that stand until it reaches a certain age. So, yeah, we are. Yeah. <clears throat> some of it's by the, covered by the tribe, and 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 most of it's covered by the by the um, Bureau of Indian Affairs through our agreement. Okay, good. Uh, Pete, how about in in private logging? Now I know. A lot of times when you go into an area, some people might think it's clear-cut, but you many times will leave certain segments of trees to regenerate a, an area, right? Yeah, there's very few 
true clear cuts. Um, very, very little. There's always trees left. Sometimes for look, sometimes for uh, uh, to break it up. Some is for wildlife. There's a wide, wide range of what goes on. A lot of times that takes that takes many years to understand what will work the best. And then you have to reach back in your memory, like with like Menominee, how they go back history-wise and remember what works. And you have to hand that down because some of that is not written down. Some of it isn't, folks. And so you right. try and hand it down to your next generation to do what you think is going to look good what's going to look proper, and so when you're done, you want it to come back a real good, healthy forest because, yes, like Ron was saying, it may not look the best when uh, there's been a job site done, but you go back there two, five, ten years later, and all that stuff has gone down quite a bit, if not completely, and you have a young, healthy forest coming. We Remember, folks, we harvest trees for today and utilize them today but we plant trees for tomorrow for the next generation, just like the sequoias. Yep. Well, guys, we've got to take our Fox News break at the bottom of the hour here. Uh, Maybe uh, Donna, Pete, and everybody, Ron, when we come back, we can maybe we can talk a little bit, if you know anything more about the potential of the replacement of the Versa plants, both in West Duluth and out in uh, Wisconsin, uh, it looks like there is some movement there. Maybe you can give us the latest information that you have and how that might affect uh, the number of logs that are uh, uh, being uh, provided for the forest industry here in the Northland. So we'll uh, we'll take our Fox News break, and then we'll come back with Let the Sawdust Fly with Peter Wood. Yes, a little wood choppers ball, a nice, uh, very nice tune to get us yep. back into the session. Well, Peter, um, take it away. Yeah, Brad, um, about uh, the paper mill in the paper mill in Wisconsin, I can only tell you what I know. Very little, nothing's really changed. They are working on it, one in Duluth. It is being converted over. Um, <clears throat> I don't believe that they're going to be taking any pulp wood there, roundwood from the forest here of Minnesota, Wisconsin. They will need to use a little bit, as far as I know, virgin pulp, but that can be bought from other mills and brought in by either rail or by truck, most likely by truck. But supposedly it's going to be using heavy, heavy recycled paper across the upper Midwest, so that's where it'll go on that, ah, on the paper mill okay. in the booth. As far as I know about the Wisconsin Rapids mill, it's still at a standstill, stagnant nothing. And that mill has consumed 25% of the wood in Wisconsin. They got wood from Minnesota as well. So there is a fair amount, but as far as I know right now, there is zero happening there. And um, but it's sad, but that's how life goes. But um, we were we were trying to get somebody else on as well from California, and Donna has a little bit of information on that about okay. how managing from that end of it as well. Right. Yeah. We we had tried to um, bring on to the show um, Frank Lake who is with the U.S. Forestry Service in the Pacific Southwest, um, specifically their research station. And what he has done, he's a member of the uh, California tribe out there that claim Karuk tribe. Um, and 
what what his tribe has witnessed is fire suppression has occurred for the last hundred years under um, federal policy, and what we're seeing and what they what they were experiencing out there was that their forests were dying off. They weren't able to be sustainable. Um, the ecology and, and, and the whole landscape was changing in a way that wasn't favorable to them. And so um, his research has been to slowly bring back the fire culture and to um, to use these controlled burns so that um, the, the grounds could be rejuvenated and bring up the um, wildlife that they needed to sustain their um, lifestyle. They, they, they would bring about berries and mushrooms and acorns and, and that sort of thing, and just, as well as having a very um, healthy forest. So it's, it's slowly taking um, root out there. They're trying to change that uh, fire suppression policy into more of a, a, a fire acceptance and they're hoping that um, they'll be the leader in the area um, to turn around this fire suppression policy. But that is one of the things we're um, hoping to have him on to talk about that because he is also working with the Hoopa Valley Tribe in California. Um, and what we're seeing is there are a lot more um, universities that are embracing um, this concept of um, fire um, as part of uh, a medicine and as a part of a way to keep our forests really healthy. And it's it's all part of um, moving away from dangerous fires to controlled fires. And what we're seeing is these out-of-control fires happening, as Peter mentions, because of this wood um, and this fuel load um, that continues to just grow and grow and grow. So what are what are good ways to management, manage it? And this um, this research seems to be taking hold, and it's going you know all across the nation. We're not seeing it just here. And I lift up Menominee because they are such a leader in this area and have had uh, management practices that have gone back you know decades. Um, that are written down in centuries um, that have been in practice. But um, we're starting to see this build across our nation where um, some of the indigenous practices and the Native American practices are starting to take hold and, and become part of our policy. Would you say in a way, Donna, maybe they're starting to see the common sense truth, what really works in everyday life? I would think that would be accurate. Yes, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's common sense to many of us, but um, you know, fire is one of those controversial topics, and um, it can get out of hand, yeah. which is one of the reasons I think people uh, try to shy away from it. But even as my dad mentions, you know, you can have a lightning strike that will start a, a forest mm-hmm. fire, and you want to make sure that that forest is as healthy as it can, is able to be, so that it can uh, sustain that, and that we have um, uh, keep our fires in check. Yeah. Yeah. If I could add, Peter, that's awesome to hear ahead, that. Ron. Oh, I just wanted thank to you. add, thank you. Um, that was awesome to hear about the California tribes. And, you know, one thing we try to do here at Menominee is, is to educate and I guess to re-educate our, our youth on go do some outreach and not just the youth, but the tribal members on why we're burning, um, you know, why we're using fire. So we go back. In the, you know, the oral, we talked about last time, the oral traditions, what we know, what we've learned, the more current history of why the fire. So we try and piece it all together and tell a story of the fire and why we're putting it back on the land and why it's important. You know, the, the traditional cultural uses of it, you know, and the, and the trends that we're using it today for, for fuel reduction, for we're using it in forestry practices for seed bed prep and stuff like that. So it's important to do the outreach 
to get your message out because yeah, fire gets it's it's scary. You know, people see it and it's perceived in that light. So we really try hard to get the outreach done to get the message out about fire to our community members and tribal members. Hey, Ron, you know, uh, go ahead, Brad. Well, I was just going to throw in, I recently read a book. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated with uh, tribal customs and things of the old uh, of days gone by. And I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of it gets forgotten. But this book I read recently was about, uh, believe it or not, it was about the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And it was about the fact that the Americans, uh, the American troops at that time did not seem to understand that a lot of the major tribes moved their villages from winter grounds to summer grounds based upon, in some cases, the availability or the viability of getting their their villages out of the way of tribal fires, grass fires that would start up every spring. It, it turned out that in the Dakota areas, some of the tribes, uh, some of the Sioux tribes, some of the Hunk Papa, some of the other tribes, uh, every year they would get these fires. Some of them started by individual members of their tribe, some of them just because of a lightning strike or whatever. But the prairie grasses would grow very tall and would dry and so to just keep their tribes out of the path of these fires, they would move from one location to the another. But for some reason, uh, some of the uh, settlers during that time thought that that was a, uh, a, a movement of tribes to put them in a position to start a conflict. And uh, I, I just found it very interesting that normal history of tribes was that they moved their their villages from winter grounds to summer grounds every year, and a lot of it was for natural reasons. And that's something that's just, I would be willing to bet if you went back there at that time, a couple hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, I'll be willing to bet it was common sense thinking of surviving and having a better life if you can move somewhere else and keep exactly keep just... That's why we're trying to bring is the, the common sense thinking of what really works in the forest floor, what really works as a whole, <clears throat> like over where Menominee is or where we're at, where there's forest. Wherever there's forest, I believe you could have uh, a power plant made that could consume wood waste in all these areas where we could take little spots and just keep – you'd have to do the scales and economics of where it would be big enough to justify building a power plant – but why couldn't you have power plants that consume either pellets or wood waste or something instead of coal across the whole area wherever there is forest? And that way, yeah. yeah, we're still burning. And they take the ashes from that, and common sense is they put it on farm fields and they use it for fertilizer. So fertilizer, all these things sure. could be utilized on a regular basis. It's just that, like Ron was saying, through the education, um, maybe a lot of folks don't know. And then as they start to understand it, like you're saying – Brad, about this, the Native Americans, how they'd move because of the fires that may come through? 
Well, and think about it. I mean, who doesn't want to spend the summer on the shores of Lake Superior? Why wouldn't you put your summer camp out there? It's gorgeous. Um, so, sure. yeah, some of these things, um, you know, and that's where your fishing was and your sustainability. But in the wintertime, you want to go into the deeper woods where it's a little bit um, less uh, aggressive. Not harsh. And, and not harsh, right. But I did want to mention, too, we had invited someone from Fond du Lac to be um, on our show, um, but we but was unable to make it. And, and um, he's part of their forestry program too so we talk about this education and we we're starting to see that even the Koke forestry center is doing some of this um teaching of um of our native practices and then uh, specifically out in california as well um they have industrial forestry um and where it where it intersects with native american forest management so i think we're starting to see this um take hold not only in our local levels but in our universities um so it's it's starting to become hopefully what will be more common practice Well, um, guys, this has been an interesting series, I've got to tell you that. Uh, Peter, where are we going to take uh, the show from here? I mean, what uh, do you have any plans on uh, next month? Where we will, what direction we will be heading in? I'm working on somebody that uh, hopefully will be able to come in and talk about. um, I can't go much into it, but yes, there's another direction coming that. Maybe we should have a contest if somebody can figure out which way we're going to go here. But it's mm-hmm. <laughs> I've used Donna quite I, a I, bit I here, done. folks. I, 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 <laughs> I feel guilty. And Ron squeeze. has been excellent. <laughs> I keep feeling like I keep calling these folks and asking, oh, what about this? What about this? I was thinking, man, I'm, I don't want to use these people. But it's like you got all this information, so I'm going to use you. Yeah. Yes, good, good. Well, I think it keeps. Uh, I think it brings for a lively uh, discussion. I know that I've learned over the last four segments or so that the uh, Native Americans that have been here a lot longer than we were uh, managed forests for their own benefit and for the benefit of the land, and and that's really uh, really what I think is missing in places like California right now, where we just we see these massive massive fires every year through the same areas over and over again we just don't seem to learn and one of the things that has concerned me too is um, what is the direction the federal government is taking because they um, oversee the the federal land part of it and um, you know are they going to move towards practices that are helpful or hurtful and these are meant to be multi-use um uh, areas and um, you know what we're seeing with some of the uh, the current administration is that they're really moving more towards um, you know these regulations that get put in place and, and we've seen that currently with our mining um, where yes we're in favor of mining but then you have to go through all these checklists to, to even get anything approved are we going to see the same right. thing with our with our lands so we're hopeful that our, our tribes will be able to speak up and speak to the power of, of their their practices and and uh, keep us moving in a positive direction. Yeah, and folks like Ron out there that really do a lot of work for their tribe and for the timber industry as a whole. It's fantastic, Ron, that you were willing to come on. And in a way, it's kind of sad that it's everything comes to an end, but I feel kind of depressed right now a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, because he's been so helpful, and I've learned a lot about the Menominee tribe, and next year we hope to go over and visit them and uh, see how they do things and see their over-100-year-old sawmill. That would be great. Yep. That would be really Hopefully. great. Well, Peter, uh, Peter, yeah. Go ahead, Ron. There you go. 
Yeah, open invitation to anyone, you know, to the group. Uh, I appreciate the time. You guys are welcome over here anytime. Um, anytime you get close, um, you guys got my contact info. And anytime you want me back for any little segments of the show or whatever, I'll be more than happy to come back. That's great. Really do appreciate that it, Ron. That's great. Really. Well, Peter, I want to thank you uh, again. And Donna, uh, salute as always. Um, thank Ron for being on these segments. And uh, we're going to let you go. Uh, but look forward to next month, a new direction that uh, Let the Sawdust Fly is heading yep, in. It will it's, be. Uh, it's always enjoyable. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Ron. And thank you, Brad. All right. Happy New Year to all of you. And uh, we will take our Wisconsin news break. We'll come back shortly.